Welcome back to another episode of Aboutcast. It is your main man, your podcasting best friend, Jordan, back with another one. This is going to be a little bit different of a beat, especially with the Attack on Titan stuff that I'm doing with Chris right now, which is if you guys are a fan of anime, deep analysis on things, and are right now catching up on Attack on Titan, I would highly recommend that you hop on that series as well. Really interesting stuff and we are getting all the Attack on Titan goodness. But to keep that short and to talk about this podcast right here, we are going to be talking about a quick book review of The Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad that was published in 1899, and then talk about the actual Belgian exploration and history with the Congo. And just so you guys know, this is going to be a really dark and deep podcast. So you can kind of uh, surmise from this is... I guess why we are monsters innately, I think. And maybe this is something that this is colored by my experiences and what I've learned in the history that I've studied, or maybe just this particular time of human history. But I think that it's extraordinarily important and um, clear to see that the, you know, there's a lot of evil in history and things of that nature, whether it be, you know, Obviously, the things we're going to be talking about today, the Gulag Archipelago, the things that happened in Nanking, um, you know, all over the place in the world, you can find some really, really inhumane things done to humans by other humans. And so it's kind of ironic that we have that word to describe something that is civil and um, somewhat altruistic, and it is likened to us. But um, we do a really good job of not exhibiting that and uh, doing the opposite of a lot of the times throughout history. And of course, um, you know, these things are also happening or, you know, inhumane things and um, horrific things are happening right now um, that we're doing to people. But anyway, so without belaboring the intro today once again we're going to be talking about the heart of darkness really quick and then hopping into some belgian history on the congo so just a quick synopsis of the heart of darkness essentially what we have is it's the it's a it's a book kind of uh, as a um scathing um call out of what's happened in the belgian congo and that's or belgian what was do, Belgian doing in the Congo with the um, Belgian Free State or whatever uh, King Leopold was calling it? And sorry, that was kind of a, a flippant way of saying it, but um, I just have a lot of attitude when it comes to this, just because of um, all the indignation you feel when you're reading about uh, how people were treated and the horrific things happening to them. So apologize for that. Uh, it might slip out here and there again. Um, but I'll try my best to deliver the facts as quick, like, you know, succinctly and as, um, unbiased as possible, uh, as best as I can. So anyway, talking about the heart of darkness, you follow this character, Marlo in a self narrated story that he is talking about, um, to his crewmates on a ship waiting to go into, uh, the Thames, uh, to go into London. And so he describes uh, his journey as a young man and as a steamboat driver through the Congo to deliver ivory and then pick up a very important um, agent called Mr. Kurtz. And 
throughout this, he just describes his journey as far as the things he sees, the savagery of the wilderness and the savagery of man in a sense as well. So essentially, um, as he goes further and further deep into the heart of Africa through the Congo, um, he, he, you know, is an audience member of kind of very, very animalistic things. And at first I, I think, you know, the the way that Marlowe is painted in this is kind of a um he's not necessarily like um he's not evil he's not a bad guy but you could definitely tell that um some of the things that he's experiencing is he's almost like the most independent person in the room so for instance he observes that you know the Congolese people are you know, relatively, you know, human and he shares emotions with them, but still in the light of kind of these people are savages and things of that nature. So there is kind of a racist tinge, uh, throughout the book. And in, in particular, um, you know, short story long, the, the main guy, Kurtz, who was upheld as being this, uh, excellent, um, excellent manager in recovering ivory and, um, you know, managing this, this kind of operation in the heart of the Congo, he's actually grown insane. And he has adopted his, like, you know, being a savage in a sense as well. And, um, very, very horrific ways of, you know, having heads on stakes, um, knowingly having the power to execute people, um, even attacking the steamboat as it came in, even though these were people were employees of the same company, he attacked his own steamboat. Um, so there's very many instances where this captain Kurtz, um, you know, as, as Marlowe is going down, uh, you know, this person was held in the highest revere. Um, people thought he was amazing. And as they eventually got there, they realized that this guy was just an animal. And, um, by that time, he was uh, he, Captain Kurtz, or Mr. Kurtz was, um, he was led on the back to the ship because he was going to be taken back out and, um, you know, brought back to Europe. And he became very, very ill, and he died. And the last words that he said were essentially the horror. So I believe uh, it makes, the author makes it, sound like he's actually reliving everything that he experienced beforehand and um and it kind of painted him in this really really um i think justice justice lit shade or color in the fact that he did did all these horrific things and he has to relive them in his last moment of life and following that once marlo gets back he has the papers to deliver to his um, I believe it is his wife and he, she asks him, you know, what was Kurtz's last words? And he, he kind of stops and he eventually just doesn't tell her. He, he said that her name was the last words that he spoke instead of, um, acknowledging that this guy was a monster and, um, he was reliving all of his monstrous and horrific things that he did in the end. And, then there's also the second part is uh, is to this ending is um he talks about leading into the the river into london as 
the a darker a darker place in the darkest heart compared to the Congo being that um historically this has been played through again because the Romans did that same thing they went up through the river Thames and conquered it as like the Congolese people were conquered um, by Europe and I I feel like this book is um you know it's very it's very on the nose um you know it's not very hard to uh, elicit and understand the actual premise of the the mirrors being flipped back on to the people who have done these things and uh, it's obviously not a very good view and to kind of give you context on why this book was written and what why i think that it was actually it was, it was probably well done uh, at the time as far as being at 1899 this was in the heat of what was happening in the congo and belgium's operations in there um so let's let's hop back in into the actual history of this stuff so between 18 the 1870s and the 1920s was belgium's main exploration time of central africa specifically the congolese region of it and one of the first expeditions was led by a guy named Henry Morton Stanley, and he was ex- uh, he was exploring under the sponsorship of King Leopold of Belgium. And this specifically was in kind of the area of the Congo, um, where it was heavily disrupted through like slave raiding and uh, things of that nature. And it was mainly done by a guy named uh, Tipu Tip. Or his actual name was Hamed bin Mohammed bin Juma bin Rajab el Majrabi. And this guy also happened to be the front runner for the Asshole with the Longest Name Award. Um, but he was a notable slave trader. Once again, sorry. Um, that was just in my notes. I wrote that down in the middle of that. Um, so essentially, uh, he was well known to Stanley. And, um, this guy was kind of the main leader of taking slaves out in and out. Um, there's not much to say about Tipu, but he was just a, he was infamous for, um, owning tons, thousands of slaves, um, and things of that nature. And his nickname was based off of the sound of, you know, what his gun made. He was running expeditions, um, since he was very young or probably in his twenties, um, leading men into, do slave raids and things of that nature. And he was of Arab Swahili descent. And so this is kind of um, interesting for people who are trying to imagine this guy now are probably scratching their heads and what exactly that looks like. And if you look at pictures, he looks like a, um, you know, like an African man. Um, you wouldn't be able to like discern him. He doesn't look extraordinarily Arab at all. Um, he definitely looks African. So there's um there's an image for you guys for trying to put names with faces and anyway so leopold's first major design or kind of idea for the congo was to procure the area and convincing convincing everybody in europe that it's it was for like humanitarian rights and so this is when this um evil evil kind of uh, manifests itself in some some like long-term scheming ways essentially um under the guise of obviously like philanthropic and humanitarian ways he convinced the conference of berlin 
1885, which was essentially um, uh, coming together of the European powers to divvy out parts and countries of, um, of Africa at the time. And so essentially he had, he got the right to Congo and he promptly named it his new colony, Congo, the Congo Free State. And uh, essentially what he was after is obviously the slaves and the ivory and the rubber or in the minerals, of course, of the Congo Basin. And scratch that part about the slaves because um, we we found out really quick that in his um, way of spinning it, it was, he um, abolished slavery uh, in a very convenient sense, but not really, as we'll see. So uh, right now, um, King Leopold has the Congo Free State, and he essentially made... Um, certain offices so there was a interior and foreign affairs and finances office that essentially did his bidding um and you could tell by the reason i add this in is because there's you know it's not fair to the actual history to kind of paint it as this like chaotic free-for-all there was very very strong systematic levers and pulleys that helped implement and leverage the ideas that king leopold had to um to basically dominate and uh, execute his massacre of the Congo Free State, of what it was called back then. And so he first um, pledged to suppress the East African slave trade. So that goes to uh, Mr. Longname and in a, like a pro-humanitarian right and guaranteed, you know, free trade within the colony and, um, you know, said no no import duties or anything like that for the next 20 years so uh, it made it seem like it was a quite quite philanthropic at the time but the the main reason to uh, of course if you're kind of keen-eared or thinking about this strategically the main reason to suppress and abolish slavery in the slave trade was to obviously take out one of the main opposing powers in the region um, being that these slave traders had a lot of leverage and, um, and in a sense, could destabilize what King Leopold II was doing or trying to do in the first place. So first thing is neutralize his kind of uh, his uh, competition in the area by suppressing those guys. And, um, and then he can kind of get back to business as far as those things happened um, and the things that he did. So the also the he also had a few other decrees or uh, decrees that he had. The first was to assert the rights of proprietorship over the vacant land throughout the Congo territory. So essentially saying that all the free land right now at this point is owned by the state and the people that are living on land right now cool that's yours but the state owns everything else. So essentially uh, land blocking the you know, the people of the Congo to exactly where they were at. And this also means that the state owned everything that was on that land as well. So essentially being that they owned a monopoly on the most valuable parts of the Congo, which was the rubber, which was the minerals and so on. So uh, essentially this was kind of a, 
a really, really interesting ploy. So it essentially says, hey, the guys that, you know, the land that you guys are on, that is absolutely your land. We'll take care of the rest type of thing. Um, Very, very insidious. So essentially nearly every, I mean, all of the Congo Free State land was state owned. Um, And of course, like I said, he's, uh, you know, as they abolished slavery, liberated slaves at the time, there was thousands of them that were liberated, um, effectively increasing your workforce pretty by a lot, which is kind of uh, convenient. So after that, um, there was a uh, anti-slavery conference that he had in 1889. So imagine four years, this guy kind of moves fast and implementing changes and stuff to this uh, country that he had. And then he said that essentially Africans can only sell their harvested products, which is mainly ivory and rubber, to the state. And uh, in the large part, the what that means is that um, there's only one person that they can sell to, which limits their ability to negotiate bargain and everything like that. So another like economically very, very strong and insidious way of uh, owning the monopoly on one, the supply and to um of essentially like building your own so there's obviously a horizontal and vertical monopolies that they're manifesting here and essentially this is um where it kind of gets uh quite 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 uh dark so after these implementations and kind of um you know cornering these people into only being able to sell and and obviously manufacture things on like either it's state owned or you have to sell to the state, um, which means that they can c- control the prices as well. So essentially, the um, Leopold had his private army called the the Force Publique, which he was used to enforce rubber quotas as well. So essentially, kind of like forced labor to work for the state as far as like forced servitude and what that means these quotas were held up by um you have to collect this amount of of rubber and and stuff like that and this the force was actually first put there by uh leopold to kind of fight back on the arab slave trade and then eventually once that was suppressed they turned their forces on um, the rubber. And of course, these guys were his private army. So, you know, only white Europeans, uh, a lot of like, you know, Belgians and other mercenaries from places. And then eventually they recruited Africans from Zanzibar and West Africa and then eventually the Congo themselves. And once again, um, the and so this is another thing that is uh, crazy. And so Leopold actually encouraged slave trade among the Arabs in the upper Congo to basically return slaves to fill out the army themselves. So no more slaves, just but only for me type of situation we have there. So extraordinarily um, exploiting the natives. So these people were obviously like kidnapped and um, forced to, you know, leave their villages and stuff like that to work for the army and to promote the the rubber trade and enforce that on, um, you know, locals themselves and, uh, you know, other P- Europeans enforcing that as well. And um, 
you know, sometimes these people were kidnapped from the upper Congo, um, as like kids and raids and stuff. Like I mentioned, um, they're also brought to like, uh, you know, Roman Catholic missions and stuff like that, uh, where they served in the military for training and stuff like that. Uh, and of course they weren't in really good conditions. They were treated as slaves as well. Um, and it says that the, from what I read, one of the normal things that are like main weapons that they had was a bullwhip made for hippopotamus made of hippopotamus hide to kind of torture hostages. Obviously we know what whips are used for. Um, and there's a lot of instances of kind of just inhumane and just like crazy, crazy treatment of these people. So, um, you know, this, this goes down to kind of what you find in some really extraordinarily, uh, horrific, uh, strategic minds when it comes to oppression and suppression of people. So it would be the slaughtering of families of rebels. Um, and before then they would be flogged and raped, um, and then burned as well. And so not only people, but the villages, um, and then they started doing a thing where, um, you know, they would also cut people's hands off as quotas and things of that nature. And, uh, there's going to be, uh, quite a bit of history, even to this current day of, uh, hands and the Belgium culture, but essentially the, you know, and we're going back from obviously like rubber. So these people were essentially forced to work for the, for the government to produce rubber and how they would produce rubber from my research is they would, um, you coat themselves in latex and then have to scrape that off of their skin to, uh, produce the rubber. And so that's obviously extraordinarily painful. And if you have a quota to this, um, then that's even more stressful and horrific. And, um, another thing was if you didn't meet your quotas that the state set for you, so it doesn't matter if you could negotiate as far as like, Oh, well the yield this year is a little low and we don't have as many working things. No. Um, well, it's going to cost hands and either they collect them or you give them hands. And so what that eventually means is that, uh, to the point of mistreatment of the indigenous people, they also had to turn on themselves. So that means that other villages would raid, um, people or other villages and attack each other to collect hands. So, um, you know, a slaughtering amongst each other to collect hands. And obviously that was used as a weapon that, um, you know, and nobody was safe from this, obviously men, women, and children. Um, they, you know, those hands were cut off and the, the kind of like the eerily horrific thing today, when I mentioned that it was, you know, that there is some presence of this today or the history of it is in Belgium, Belgium, there are these things called chocolate hands. And so they sell little hands, uh, made out of chocolate and it's like a cultural thing. Um, which is like horrifically disgusting. And, um, to this day. So, um, if you are going, you can look for that and kind of, uh, you know, bum you out a little bit. And another thing too, is obviously when it comes to, uh, intermixing of like other different populations, we've seen this with Europeans and native Americans. Um, but a lot of the Congolese people died of, um, you know, obviously exploitation that we just talked about, but also disease. So we're talking about, um, something called sleeping sickness, which I wasn't, 
exactly sure what that was, but there was also smallpox as well. And there are records that say that from like government, um, you know, government, the government like officials that the Congolese population was reduced by half during the period between 1885 and 1908. So if you think about that, that is what, 23 years, 15 plus eight. And it is, it's crazy. It's crazy to think about and um, see. And uh, I guess this is a good point to just kind of um, veer off a little bit. Uh, during this research, um, it's obviously like really, really n- horrible to to like think about and research about. So I was, um, I was, I had a drunken master one and two. I was watching it, uh, on the side, uh, as like a cool distraction. And number one, the choreography in those movies, as far as the fight choreography is amazing. I highly recommend, recommend people watch it. I watched it with like music on because the subtitles were, um, really bad, but you can kind of follow along the story and, you know, it really reinvigorated my love for Jackie Chan. That dude is a rock star at the age of 66. So, you know, he's definitely like a lot older than like Rush Hour 2 days and around the world and what is 60 days or 80 days or whatever that was that he did. Um, but he also made a film about kind of like poaching and conservation of that stuff recently. I think it was a uh, 2015 that he made one and that was extraordinarily cool. Um, the, sorry, this is a big divulgence. So uh, give me, give me one more minute and then I'll be done with Jackie Chan and fighting and stuff like that. But it was a thing called gambling on extinction and it was back in 2015 and it was, um, it was a really cool movie about, a look in kind of the proliferation of the illegal wildlife and product trade throughout the world. Um, so in a kind of like a broad, weird sense, um, I could tie it in through the ivory so you guys can stop yelling at me, but another way of like, uh, informing yourself. Um, but once again, drunken master and the legend of the drunken master, which is kind of, a part two. And then I'm also going to be watching dancing mantis, which is kind of like drunken master part two, uh, highly recommend those. Um, if you like kind of like a drunken boxing and stuff like that, and the choreography is sick. Um, yeah, I would, I would give that a watch, but back, back to darker matters at hand. Um, the essentially, um, where we were just at is how the, Congolese people pop like the population was reduced by half due to the exploitation and the disease. And we also have those rubber quotas that I was talking about. And just to revisit those, of course, um, those were going to be punishable by death. And, um, those, and essentially it was like a really bad system as far as like back to the hands, um, so the proof was in the hands. So saying like, Hey, I have this person's hands. Um, so that means that they're dead or useless to the state. So might as well be dead. Cause they can't, um, produce ivory or rubber at that point. Um, but, uh, it ended up that of course the soldiers were going, just cutting off hands anyway to gather them or the other villages would go onto other villages. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just so crazy, man. Um, 
to think about and read about this type of history and kind of one of the most horrible rulers and probably, um, you know, has a special place in the 1800s as far as, uh, you know, a horrific ruler in uh, King Leopold II of Belgium. And I think that this is a perfect example of why it is so important to think about the horrific things in history because it is, um, you know, we are we are no different to those people as far as, yeah, we, we have like more developed ideas and we have some, some more sense of civility, but in the sense of the human nature to be monsters, I think is a uh, very, very well and alive. And, um, some people can definitely, uh, relate to that if they've had experiences of, um, like extreme, you know, distress or trauma or something horrific happens to somebody they love. Um, you can like really, really sense that there is a, like monstrous um there's this kind of innate animal and i think all of us and um it's important to think and realize these things and um and also i think this is an illustration of how it comes out in insidious ways obviously this was a very like educated and intellectual attack on the congolese people being that as far as like eyes were concerned, if you just read paper and listened to what was going on, then it was, you know, humanitarian, philanthropic and things of that nature and kind of liberated the people. No more slavery. Uh, my fingers are doing the quote signs. Um, and, you know, it was actually supposed to be like facilitating to the uh, Congolese people, but it annihilated them. So half of the population in the Congo was killed and um the rest suffered immensely either you know suffered by being enslaved and having to you know execute and exploit their own people or you know being sick and died or suffering through that horrific stuff and um i think that it is it's crazy to think about how so easily um, people can disassociate from others, uh, in this particular case, as far as the slave trading and all of those things go. Um, and it's, it's a lot more slippery of a slope than I think that people want to acknowledge. I mean, there's obviously other tragedies that we can talk about. Um, of course the, you know, the Holocaust, uh, I may, I named the Gulag archipelago and the the Nanking massacre before. Um, there's also horrific things that happen in Korea um, I mean, all over the world, kind of, you know, I'm not going to be exhaustive with the, the list here because I'd be here um, longer than I can exist. But there is, yeah, I think uh, it's important to acknowledge kind of the bad things. And of course, this is kind of a weird time to do it beginning of the year, just right after the holidays. But uh, I just finished The Heart of Darkness not too long ago. And um, I really want to get back into the book reviews for you guys. And sorry to kind of, um, I well kind of not sorry uh, it's important history to know and understand um it's obviously not pleasant to go over and you know learn about because it is some very dark and negative things but still um you know it's it's about understanding deficits and um shortcomings and things of that nature so that you can guard against them for later and um, make sure that you're well equipped for if you ever encounter them in your own life or um as far as reading other history or seeing other things of that nature. Um, but anyway, I hope you guys are doing great. 
um, thank you so much for all the interaction and, um, you know, enjoying these things because I really enjoy making them. A um, little bit more of a kind of like a long and winding and intersecting and kind of weaving thing and more of a conversational piece. But I figured that this one, um, free throwing and flaw, free, free th- flowing and thoughtful uh, would be good. And uh, obviously that's the perfect time to cut it off if I'm uh, having trouble forming the English language. But anyway, thank you so much for all the interaction and encouragement. I hope you enjoyed this one. We're going to be back to Attack on Titan stuff this coming week on Sunday. And I'll catch you on the next one. Peace. Thank you. 